so this evening, uh, since my two friends covered most of what I wanted to cover, I decided I would go back to a good oldies. And this is possibly uh, my last son retreat at Guy House in person. Why not? So this evening, to kind of in a way wrap up uh, our retreat, kind of what we've been doing here and how we also move into the world, I want to talk about the ox herding pictures. So the ox herding pictures is actually a series of painting, a series of poem, a series of title which present uh, the path through 10 pictures. And so the way it goes is that you have a little person and you have an ox, a cow, whatever, but a little one too, medium size. Very likely in those times, in those days, it was a buffalo, but we'll say ox for short. So you have an animal and you have the animal kind of looking. You have the person looking for the animal. So it's an ox herder pictures. And the tradition, uh, so those person did the painting and then you had the title and then you have the poem and then you have the commentary on the poem and it has, and now if you go to <coughs> Son Temple or Zen Temple or Chan Temple in China, generally around you will see this series of 10 pictures. So in temple it will be in paint, in color, on the Otherwise, you see them as black and white in ink. So what I'm going to do is tell the title of each picture, describe them a little, and their relevance to our practice. So the first one is searching for the ox. So you have the little ox herder in the middle of nowhere looking. Is there anything? And I think this uh, stage is actually when something is missing, or there is some tension, or there might be some suffering. And so we kind of think, is there more to what I'm experiencing now? Is there more? Can I find something different? Can I find... It's kind of like before we start to practice, be interested in the past, we kind of we explore possibilities. But often we explore possibility because we feel a little stuck. We feel, hmm, could there be something different? And then we might look in material thing, we might look in relationship, we might look through work, but in a way, as a little oxerder is looking, and he doesn't know, you know? And so the picture, I see him on the road, and with bushes, 
So he's like, a little sand in the bushes. Is it there? Oh, there is something there. Is it there? And actually, I think that first picture is in a way telling us it's not out there. It's within yourself. It's you doing something. You will not find it outside. It's really you doing your yourself. Then you have the next picture, which is called seeing the footprints. And then you see the little oxerder, and then he's on the road, on the path, and there he sees footprints. Whoa. And then he can ask himself, ourselves themselves, is it an ox footprint? Are they old? Are they new? And I think this is when we kind of start to see that, yeah, there is something I can do. There is, in a way, like another dimension of just material work, relationship. There is something else that I can find, that I can look for. And we could call maybe spiritual traces. And I know for myself, when I kind of be, I was at that stage, I would kind of, you know, this was long ago. Mindfulness was not a buzzword. It was in the 70s. And so kind of you would see a book or you would hear the poem. Like the two poems I really kind of still remember. The first one, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And I said, wow, not picking, not choosing, wow. <laughs> Another one was the wind blow, the bamboo shadow sweeps the stairs. No dust is stirred. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. I want this. No dust is stirred. I want that. And so, in a way, we kind of touch. We touch by a dimension we might not have been very familiar with. I know for myself, I come from a kind of a socialist family where religion was like. Kind of, there was no religion, nothing like that, of that nature. So for them, it was very weird that I kind of became a, a Buddhist. They kind of, religion? Monks and nuns? Ooh, they're nasty people. Are you sure? <laughs> so for me, it really was kind of not familiar. But it's really also kind of like, are the traces old? Or are they new? Is it something I can find for myself now? Are they relevant or not to me? Can I apply them or not? And one of the things I found, possibly this is the weirdest thing I did on my spiritual quest, hyperventilating naked in a room with strangers. That was kind of quite in 
in the 70s. <laughs> so I worked in the day, in the evening I went to do this. And then after a week, you know, they said, well, you could continue. And I thought, I'm not sure about those traces. I don't think that's what I want to do forever after. So it's kind of like, is it relevant or not? Can I apply it or not? And then you have the third picture, which is seeing the ox tail. This is a wonderful picture, the ox herder between bushes, he sees the bottom of the ox, he sees a tail flickering. Oh, he thinks, oh, I found something. So now it exists. Now not only there is a traces, now there is a beast itself. So really it's there, it exists. And I think this is when we kind of think, okay, there is really something beyond the words, beyond the poems, and then something you want to do, something you want to practice. And there, it's a little flickering, because in a way, you have so many things. I mean, in the 70s, there was a few things. Now, you have so many things. I mean, now you have apps, you have, I mean, it's incredible what you can find. In my day, it was kind of, we were going from one to the next, but because there was just about 10 things you could try out. Now you can try so many different things. And then there is this question. What I find, what I see, I get a glimpse. Does it fit? Is it inspiring? Is it meaningful? Is it beneficial? Because in a way, there are many paths. I know for myself, um, at the beginning, I mean, there was different things. So at the time, there was a little bit of uh, Zen Buddhism, Japanese style in France, and uh, you also had a little bit of Tibetan Buddhism at that time. And I kind of checked them out a little bit, and I don't know, something did not speak to me. Like there was something written, and I thought, no, no. Another thing, mm, not really. And then I went traveling, and then I ended up in Korea by a mistake in a plane ticket. And then, by coincidence, in a way, I got to the place, you could say the only place I could really be. To me, that's what is fascinating, because I went to Thailand, I saw the monks in Thailand, and then I saw the situation of the women in Thailand, and I thought, no way, this is not for me. Uh, and then when I got to Korea, the first place I went was just nuns, nuns doing their own thing. You know, doing this, I mean, so the first thing they make me do, I joined them for the evening session. I thought, you know, oh, I am in a nunnery, I must do like everybody else, I did not know anything. They have a chanting, I'll go there and I'll do it. And so they chant, I chant, I think this is beautiful, this is wonderful. And then they finish the chanting and then they start bowing. And bowing, and bowing, and bowing. 
and bowing. 108 bows I did every day. So I kind of managed to hobble back to the room and I did not go to the chanting in the morning. But you know, it's kind of like, do you find something that speaks to you? And I think once I got to the temple where I stayed, it just, it really made sense to stay there. They were very kind and you really kind of, it really made sense, it fitted. So something fitted. And then you have the next picture. And the next picture is catching the ox. So there the little ox herder has a lasso, has a rope, and he kind of caught the ox. But the ox is not so keen to be caught. And so you have kind of really like, the picture is like really the core. The rope is really kind of tension. And I think this is um, the stage when we decide to really do it. So this is it. We pass a poem, we pass trying this, this and that, we get to the place and now I am going to do this. And I think what is very important to see this stage, we often come back to it. And because I think in a way, every time we do a retreat, we think we go a little bit through the same step. To me, these 10 observing pictures are not linear. They're like kind of like an ellipse and we go up. And so often we come back to the same places. And I think when we do a retreat like you did, often we come back to that picture. Because we think, oh, you know, third picture, second picture, it'd be so great to meditate again, to be at Gaia House. Yes, let's go, it's going to be fantastic, wonderful. And then you come on a sun retreat, and then you sit and walk and sit and walk and pain in the back, pain in the knee. Why am I walking? <laughs> and you're like, and it's not easy every day. And I think this is a thing to see that sometime we'll go back to that. I must say, again, I know I mentioned it already, but I'm getting old. And so my body is not the same as it used to be. I mean, to me, it's very important for me that I can do all the sitting like you. This is one of my benchmarks. And this is what I said to myself when I started teaching. I'll do it as long I can sit there all the hours, same as everybody. But I can't anymore. My back is killing me. Really, it's really killing me. I mean, before I would sit three, no problem. But now, it's very painful. So that's why I kind of disappear a little. I have to go and lie down. That's why I have my good friends who are a little younger and tougher. They can still do it. So there is also that. Kind of there is also, I would say, that struggle. That, you know, the mind 
might be willing to, to do the, the meditation, but sometimes the body might not. And so we have to meditate in a different way. So at times, often I feel we go back to this picture. But at the same time, I feel it's a very energetic picture. Because to me, that picture represents when I really, in a way, decided to meditate. Because when I started in Korea and we had these 10 hours a day, I just thought, this is too much. I mean, it's too much sitting 10 hours a day. So I would come to the first sitting of the first block, and then I would leave, then come back to the first sitting, second block, because the first block was at three. Then third sitting, third block again, first sitting. And then one day, uh, the master came to sit with us. So I'm so, I really have to sit straight. Mm. Yes, yes. What is this? What is this? What is this? But then after, you know, one session, one uh, sitting of 50 minutes, I thought, this is it. You know, he can stay. I'm going. You know, this is too <laughs> much. So off I go. I mean, you're not supposed to go. You're supposed to do your 10 hours. So when I come back, the leader of the hall has a dictionary in hand, and he said, the master said, Okchiro Chamta. Always remembered. Okchiro Chamta. We looked in the dictionary. You have to bear beyond strength. And then I reflected that they'd been doing this for 1,200 years and nobody died of it. So possibly I could give it a go. And actually since then, apart from more recently, my body failing, I have never missed a sitting. And then and there after that in Korea, I never missed a sitting. I would always be there on time. Here we go. And very quickly, it was okay. I mean, it was not fun every day. It was not painless every day. But it was okay, because I think what happened is that suddenly I had this great faith. Yeah, sure, it's hard. But I can do this. In a way, that was in a way the late motive of my teacher, in a way. He thought anybody could do this. So he, kind of, he would try what is this on everybody regardless if they were interested or not. <laughs> because he thought, yeah, everybody can do it. And then you have the next picture. And the next picture is very interesting. It's called Tending the Ox. So here, you have the little ox herder, you have the ox. The ox is still attached with the rope, so the ox herder still holds the rope, but the rope is loose. It's kind of not tight. It's kind of loose, it's just there, between them. Just light, relaxing. And this, I think, is when we really become familiar with the practice. We know what to do. And you see, it's funny because often we think, oh, I need to ask what to do. But I think after a few years of practice, you know what to do. And this is one of my most kind of like um, striking experience when I was in Korea. 
is I go to this great then master I used to visit every free season. You could travel, so I went to see him generally and bow to him. And this time I come to him and I bow to him and I said to him, please, 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 tell me how to make the question vivid. So I'm there. And you just sit there. And he doesn't say anything. And I have traveled far. I walked up big slope, all this, and he doesn't say anything. <laughs> so I'm sitting there. Then I said, Master, Master, please say something. And he says, You know already. And that's it. So I bow back, I walk back the slope, and I think, well, I'm a bit short-changed, <laughs> you know? All this, and I only get two words, three words. You know already. And then I thought, but maybe he's right. Maybe I know what to do. He doesn't need to tell me how to make my question vivid. I know it, and actually I need to do it myself. Nobody can do it for me. And to me, that's in a way where great faith comes in as we realize, yeah, we can do this. We know how to do this. But that's what is interesting with the, when the rope is a little loose, but he still holds it. Because at that stage, you can still backtrack. And I think this is what is kind of a little pro difficult sometimes. You know, you have a really good retreat and things are really going well. You think, that's it. Got it. I know what to do. Yes. And then you come to the next retreat and nothing. And you sit there. But I thought it was working last time. And I think in a way is to remember that, yeah, we know, yes, we can do it. But at times, due to different conditions, you might feel blocked. Once I had that experience, we do a three-month retreat, and I'm really fired up this time, awakening. I come, you know. So, you know, I go to this nunnery, really, you know, and I sit, and, you know, we have uh, over 10 hours, but I'm going to do more. I'm going to do 12 hours. And yes, what is this? What is this? Nothing. Sensation of questioning, opta, meola, is not there. But every day I do it. Every day I do it. And for two weeks, nothing whatsoever. And then suddenly one day we were listening to a talk, a tape, and suddenly something struck me. And after that, the questioning was so vivid, was so bright, so clear. So to see that, yes, things are becoming more manageable, we could say. But at times, we might still have a little struggle. And then you have the number six. And number six is very lovely picture. No rope, the oxherder, 
is on the back of the ox playing the flute. It's a wonderful image. Riding the ox back home. And this, I feel, is show us that what we're doing is not just about suffering. I think this is something we have to be really careful about. That this is not just about suffering, just about dealing with difficulty and things of that nature. Of course, it can help us at times with suffering, with difficulty. But that's not all what the past is about. The past is about what already Catherine mentioned, ease, joy, creativity. So once we know what to do, actually it becomes easier. It kind of, it's a little like it happens on its own. I think at the beginning we feel like I have to do something, I have to focus, I have to question, I have to do this, I have to do that, and then you bring the tension and you push, and, and then at some point you are less in the doing and more in, okay, I, can, I have great faith, I can trust myself, I can trust the practice. And actually there is a certain ease and less this idea of expecting something. Because often, I know we all possibly have the, this experience. You're sitting in meditation, waiting for something special to happen. So you can wait, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> and then you might get a little quietness and clarity, and then as soon as you get excited, poof, it disappears. And so, in a way, at that stage, to just, in a way, be kind of a certain fluidity, and in a way doing it for its own sake, having less of an agenda, just sitting for its own sake, to see that not as a special activity, but really something which is part of our life. I mean, there was this, um, I was, uh, for three years, I was teaching seniors in France. And uh, we were teaching them meditation to see if it was helping with the brain and different, one of these scientific studies. And so we were teaching them meditation every week and one thing we really emphasized was, yes, to be mindful, but to be mindful in a friendly way. And there was this lady who was really shy, very timid. And then after nine months of doing the meditation with us, one day she had this cri de coeur as we went around everybody, how was it for you today? And she said, I don't know why, but people are so much nicer to me now. And so we said, oh, that's wonderful. But I really thought, is it her who is nicer? Is it her who is not afraid anymore so she can see that they're not dangerous and that they are nicer anyway? But you really could feel like s something which was kind of a little tight. Ah, 
I'd kind of really loosen up. There was this feeling of ease. (coughs) Then there is a seventh picture. And here it's called Forgetting the ox, the person rests alone. So here the ox disappear. The ox herder has mature as an adult and is sitting gazing at the moon by a little hut. And this to me is when actually there is no separation anymore. Because I think for a while we make meditation like a really separate thing, a spiritual thing. But personally, I think this picture is about really when we, there is no difference between meditation and living our life. And to me, when people say, my practice, is questioning, my practice is a breath. I'm thinking, maybe your practice could be to just be aware in a friendly manner (coughs) throughout the day. So really, so that the practice is not a special activity in a special place. Of course, we can meditate every day at home, of course. But to me, what is important is like when there is this seamlessness between sitting on the cushion and being in daily life. When I did a book on uh, Buddhist women, I interviewed a Korean nun, and her practice was to be a Buddha. So every morning, She would do little chanting, little meditation, and then she would go out into the world. And her intention was to have the wisdom of the Buddha, the compassion of the Buddha. She was a teacher in a university. And then at the end of the day, she reviewed how Buddha-like, how ordinary, a little kind of grasping-like had she been. Then the next day, let's go be a Buddha in the world. And so, I think this is very important, and in terms of a retreat. So in a way, you come on a retreat to retreat, but as Catherine and Tony mentioned, in a wider context. And so in a way, tomorrow you're going to go back into life, into complexity. And you can't bring your cushion. Ayakema was a great nun, German nun. And once she was saying, well, you know, you can't, you have a trouble in your life and you can say, wait a minute, stop. I need to do loving kindness right now on my cushion and then I'll deal with the situation. She said, you can't do that. You know, I mean, there is place to sit still, to cultivate stillness, brightness in that way. But what is really asked of us is this daily cultivation how we bring this awareness to everything we do, that it be our relationship, 
that it be our work. And I think that's why it's so interesting to have the work period here. Because then you can check, how do I work? Do I work fast so I can do something else? Do I work and I think of something else because it's so boring? Or do I work at a good rhythm and really present to the work? I mean, when I came to, when I stopped being a nun and came to live in Devon, not too far from here, the only thing I could do was being a house cleaner. And I was never keen on house cleaning as a child. It was not my forte. And so I thought, oh, house cleaning. But then, that was the only thing I could do. Why not? So that's what I did. And it really became my practice. And actually, I had lots of insight doing the house cleaning. <laughs> and so really, I think you c we can bring it to everything that we do. Then you have number eight. The ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. So here you just have a Zen circle. That's it, just a black mark, a black circle on white paper. And this is about really letting go. This is about emptiness. But what does it mean, emptiness? Emptiness doesn't mean that suddenly there will be this big hole will disappear into. Emptiness is really, actually, it would be better to talk about emptying. That actually the practice of meditation is emptying. And so we emptying in the self-centeredness. Like often we have the feeling, I am the center of the universe. But we're trying to move it to, I am the center of my own universe. And the other person is the center of their own universe. And to me, this is a very important thing about emptying, that as a self-centeredness dissolves, it doesn't mean that the self goes. <coughs> I mean, myself is not yourself. I mean, up to a point we're human being, we organism. But in a way, to also see emptying, as realizing that we are a flow of condition, a flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. And because of inner and outer condition, then this organism, to some degree, will be different from your organism. And so you have to be careful. Like when we talk of emptiness, often we think it's too metaphysical. But to me, emptiness would be if somebody talked to you, you really listen to them, where they are at, and not when you think they are at or where you think they should be at, or any other kind of framework. Nowadays, I mean, everybody loves to psychologize people. They must do this because of that. They must do this because of that. Or they must do this because of me. A lot of the time, people are doing things because 
of themselves, of their own conditions. We all have different survival mechanisms. And so in a way, the emptying is, I would say, moving from 95% self-centered to 50%. Not 0%, but 50% because you have to take care of yourself. But at the same time, if you dissolve some of that, you can really see the person, the being, for themselves. And then, I would say, there can be a different type of relationship. Then there is a nine picture, because we don't stop at empty. We move, there is still other stages. Then you have nine. It's called returning to the original place. And then what you see is actually either you have an um, early plum blossom. I don't know if you notice in January, February, you have wild blossom. The first flower you're going to get is the plum blossom, but not the one you can eat. But you have all these, uh, in France you have that, lots of these plum blossoms. So it's kind of this blossom. Now you have cherry blossom. And what is this about? Is that actually this is bringing us back out again into the world, into a wider context. That also, although there is this emptying, there is this emptiness, so that if the self-centeredness dissolves, then we can see how we so interdependent. This is really about interdependence. And to me, when I look at emptiness, the first thing I look at is actually this organism. What does this organism depend upon? Depends <coughs> on water, on air, on clothes, on food, on houses, on medicine. And all of it, I don't make myself. Unless I'm a super, super uh, self-sufficient type, I generally don't. So actually, if we just look at this flow of conditions, we realize how we depend on this complex, all these things we depend upon. And so to see how so connected we are I would say, to all of life. And I think that one of the things that's so beautiful about the Thich Nhat Hanh, what he brought to the practice, is really like when he says, you know, you look at this piece of paper, and can you see the seed? Can you see the tree? Can you see the person cultivating? Can you see the person making the piece of paper, etc., etc.? to see that anything we use is just this endless line of complexity, starting with something, which then something cultivate, then something make, and then it brought to us. And that's why at that level, I think also this picture nowadays, 
could be about nature, could be about ecology. Do re realizing we're so interconnected and we're destroying so much. How can we live a more, in a way, simple life so that there is, in a way, less destruction? And also within that picture, there is an idea that nature can teach us or that everything can teach us. My teacher used to say, listen to this bird. He's giving a Dharma talk. <laughs> and once I had this weird experience. I was sitting here in meditation and I was hearing, tweet, 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 tweet. And then I started to see the flow of condition. Then I started to see the little worm that the bird had eaten so he could leave, so he could do his tweet, tweet, tweet. Then I was thinking about this poor little worm. Then suddenly I got, whoops, the sounds kind of, then it kind of becomes a little different. It was kind of a strange experience. So in a way, it's kind of anything can teach us something. And then the last one. The last one is the tenth, appearing in the marketplace with gift. Then the little ox herder reappear, then he's next to a monk who has a big bag of gift and he's weary, wearing raggedy sandals and on the side you have like a village, like a market. And so this is very much about us in a way bringing the practice into the world, going out into the world and because each of us is a different flow of conditions we will bring and manifest this creative, wise compassion that Tony talked about in many different ways. And recently, I had this wonderful experience. So there is this uh, groups of uh, nuns in Thailand, and they're all for women getting full ordination. I won't go into the story of that. But that's their big thing. And they're also really for supporting women, Buddhist women. And so 20 years ago, they created the Outstanding Buddhist Women Award. And then each year, at the beginning, they had five, and now they generally have 20. And this year, I was nominated. So generally it works by somebody nominates somebody else, the person is checked. If they think she is okay, then she goes in the list. So I was asked if I was okay to receive it. I said, sure. I was asked, you know, do you want to come to the ceremony by Zoom? And I was told it's about two hours, possibly three. Became four, but that's another story. <laughs> but what was amazing is that I felt this was a 10 picture in action. Because what we had is that we had, you had five groups of four ladies, some nuns uh, from all countries, Taiwan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, a few Westerners, Thailand, everybody was there. 
And then they had little clips of what, what they were outstanding about, these ladies. I mean, me compared to them, I really was not outstanding at all. But them, it was amazing. I mean, you had a Chinese nun in Taiwan who was very interested in death and dying and hospice work. And then she devised a whole curriculum around this. Then she devised a theater piece around it. So she created theater around the theme. And after the play is done, then she discussed with people in the audience about death and dying. Amazing. You also had somebody teaching through Chinese opera. You had somebody taking care of orphans. I mean, it was just wonderful, wonderful to actually see the range of possibility. That it be nuns, that it be lay, lay women, they were all being so active, so creative. And so in a way, personally, I think that's what this picture is about, is how do we go out into the world? And of course, we, we have to be careful. To, we're not going to be heroes or heroines. And very likely, the lady I saw, the nuns, the lay women, I mean, they were not somewhere 30, 40, 50. And you could see that they must, you know, one piece by piece, they achieve what they achieve. So it was not overnight. <coughs> but in a way, I think they had the great faith <coughs> to do something. They had the great courage to go on with it. And then they had the great questioning, I felt, of what can I do in terms of my ability? And then that lady really was kind of, her ability was hospice work. And the other one coming from a Chinese operatic family, obviously, had that background. And so in a way, it's each of us. What can we do? And in a way, manifest our practice in the world. So that's what I wanted to share today. Are there any questions or comments? Normally, I would have a little um, A4 with all the pictures on it, but I had not planned to, to give that talk. But if you go, if you Google Oxerding picture, you get there, and you get very different style. Okay, if uh, there is nothing, then we could uh, do a little walking meditation before the final sitting. 